Yeah. Can you hear me? There we go. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Rudy, and the worship team. Have you ever heard the story of Eric Little? Whether you have or haven't, I'll tell you the story. Um, Eric was born in China. He was the son of missionary parents from the London Mission Society. Although he was born in China, he went back to English boarding school for most of his education and spent most of his youth and his young adult years there in England and in Scotland. Eric was an incredible athlete. He played rugby and cricket at high levels, but eventually he turned the focus of his athletic abilities to track and field, specifically 100-meter race. He competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, where he actually opted out of the 100-meter race because he felt convicted not to race on a Sunday. But he did win the bronze in the 200-meter race, and he won the gold in the 400-meter race. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it's an adaptation of his biography and specifically his time as an athlete and his Olympic journey. But interestingly enough, Eric's story only begins after the Olympics or continues because a year after the Olympics uh, ended, Eric chose to follow God's calling by becoming a missionary to China. He left Scotland to become a uh, teacher in the region of, uh, in the city of Tianjin, Tianjin, pardon. And he used his athletic experience to train many young boys in the school there. In the following years, he became a, became a Sunday school teacher. He would also help build a stadium And he only ever returned to Scotland twice in his life. And he was asked this, if he regretted leaving behind the fame and the glory of his athletic career to become a missionary. So this is what he said. It's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes. But I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. Now, by 1941, Eric's missionary work became quite dangerous to the point where his pregnant wife and two daughters had to leave the country and go to Canada because of the rising tensions between China and Japan. He continued his ministry work until he was uh, forced into an internment camp in 1943, uh, and he would eventually pass away there a few months before the end of the war. Eric's story is a testimony of a man who answered God's calling to go, to leave behind a a fulfilling, fruitful, and rewarding livelihood to minister to a people across the earth. In today's passage, we're going to look at the story of Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was called away from a thriving ministry in Samaria to go and to minister. Unlike Eric, however, the Lord called him for a single, brief, but life-changing encounter. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 26 to verse 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. I believe it's on the screen. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, 
to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In this encounter, we see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit undeniably evident throughout this meeting between Philip and the eunuch. This meeting outlines faithful obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in readiness to preach the gospel. We see understanding and interpretation of scriptures and the simple yet genuine response to salvation and to baptism. This is what I'd like to do with you this morning with the time we have is to look at a little bit of context for uh, this passage. First of all, in the, in, the context, in the context of the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel. And secondly, throughout the passage we read. And then I'd like to look at three main themes or ideas that resonate throughout this passage in this divine, divinely orchestrated encounter. First of all, the preeminence of the Holy Spirit, the importance of scriptural understanding, and finally, the response of obedience. Now, as we go through the book of Acts, it continues the story of King Jesus as he establishes his kingdom. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit enabling and assisting Jesus' followers to embrace the Father's mandate, which is to testify to Jews and non-Jews from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth about Jesus' salvation through his death and resurrection. Jesus gives commands to his disciples before, before leaving. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, so far, we've seen that the church has been growing and has been composed of the following. We've seen Jews from the diaspora who would come back to Jerusalem to worship. We see this in Acts 2 when Peter preaches his first sermon. We also see Jewish men and women from around Jerusalem. Uh, In Acts 5.14, we read, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. We also see Hellenist Jews were part of the church in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6 as well, we see Jewish priests coming to the Lord. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And last week, and in this chapter, in chapter 8, we start to see a difference in who is receiving the gospel. So far, it's been the Jews. But last week, you saw how the Samaritans were recipients of the gospel message. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. We read that in verses 4 and 5 of of chapter uh, chapter 8 last week. It's significant to to stop for a second and examine the progression of the gospel at this point in the book of Acts. Because for the first seven chapters, we've seen that the geographical spread of the gospel has been centered around Jerusalem. The church has been in Jerusalem, the apostles, the spread of the gospel has been centered there. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, after Stephen's death, there is great persecution, and the church began to spread in Samaria and Judea. And the work of Philip, the evangelist, which we see in chapter 8, and this week we're looking at the second part of his, of his work, uh, serves as a springboard for Luke in his account of the, in, in the book of Acts to, to tell us how the gospel is going into the nations. So in the first part of Philip's story, we see the gospel in Samaria. And now we see Philip's story take him to the desert road where he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch would have been a non-Jew who would have been traditionally rejected by Jewish people as a proselyte. Now this eunuch becomes a follower of Christ, bringing the gospel to his home country. So slowly but surely, we see that progression of the gospel from the Jews in Jerusalem to Samaritans in Samaria, to now a Gentile seeking to follow the Lord in the, de- in the desert of Gaza. Let's look at a little more context from this passage. We look at verse 26. Now, Philip, as a reminder, was one of the seven who was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve tables, to ensure that the daily distribution of food was done properly in the church. Huberson preached a fantastic message on this about three weeks ago laying how the church needed to distribute the responsibilities within the church properly to take care of the people. And it's important to make the distinction between the Philip in this story and Philip the Apostle. So this is Philip one of the seven, also nicknamed Philip the Evangelist, or Philip the Deacon, or Philip one of the seven, and was not Philip one of the Apostles. We don't know where Philip was, 
when he was instructed to go south on the road, but we know he was taken away from a successful ministry in Samaria. Samaria was specifically mentioned in, as part of the call from Jesus to bring the gospel to the nations. So it might have seemed almost inappropriate for Philip to leave that ministry and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit to go into a desert place. Another interesting thing to note in this passage is the use of the angel of the Lord as a messenger. And that's actually reminiscent of a story in 2 Kings chapter 1, when Elijah is called to arise and go. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3, we read, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. A little bit later, in uh, verse 15, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. In this verse also, you might have a footnote that gives an alternative translation for rise and go to the south. It may be written, go about noon. Now, if Philip was in Samaria, when the sun was at noon, since he was north, the sun would have been pointing towards the south. And so that could have been a geographical indication that he needed to go to go south. But the angel's instruction could have also indicate, indicated the time of day that he needed to be on that road. And this would have been particularly perplexing for Philip, given that there would be hardly anyone on the road at noon, given the heat. Now, some commentators believe that the comment by Luke, this is desert, is in reference to the old Gaza, the old city of Gaza, that had been destroyed in about 100 BC by Alexander the Great. And so now the, the new city of Gaza, which was occupied, was located away from this old city. What we see here is that Philip obeys immediately. He rose and went. Regardless of the seeming futility of the opportunities of evangelism, God asks Philip to leave that thriving ministry for the Judean desert, and he goes. And what we see here is a divinely arranged encounter. We clearly see that the call for Philip to journey and his actions are instigated and orchestrated by God. And this is part of God's purpose that the Gentiles would be evangelized. As we continue reading, we see that in this desert place, Philip finds an Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit guides Philip to a desert place where there's an oasis of life. A man whose heart is ripe and ready for harvest. The ancient kingdom of Ethiopia existed between the city of Aswan, which is in modern-day southern Egypt, and Khartoum, which is in modern-day Sudan. This kingdom was ruled by a queen mother who had the dynastic title of Candace. And she ruled on behalf of her son, the king. Now, the king was regarded as a descendant of a god, and so, therefore, too holy to take care of of the merely secular functions of the state. Now, also in antiquity, a eunuch was someone who had been emasculated surgically in order to guard the king's harem. Some eunuchs would then arise to positions of authority in the government. Now, this eunuch, we know, had tremendous authority under Candace, the queen. And this 
eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, most likely, he was a God-fearing Gentile who could not become a full convert since he'd been required to become circumcised to be an accepted proselyte. His situation is actually rather tragic. He could never fully belong to the people of God, according to Mosaic law. We find this very clearly in Deuteronomy 23, that he would be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. Yet, he feared God, worshipped him, and was seeking him. In his retelling of this story, Luke is demonstrating the fulfillment of certain prophecies from the Psalms and from Isaiah. I'd like to read them for you. Starting with Psalm 68, verse 31. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord. And from Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Philip received a second divine command to go over and join this chariot. Now, the chariot was presumably ox-drawn and therefore would have not moved at much more than a walking pace. So Philip runs up to the chariot and calls out to the occupant. And Philip recognized what was being read as he approached. It was being read either by the eunuch himself or perhaps a slave that was reading to the eunuch. And the eunuch confesses his need for an interpreter. We see evidence already of his heart that is ready for instruction. Philip was called upon to help the eunuch understand scriptures. In the same way, Jesus has guided his disciples throughout his ministry and helped them understand the meaning of scripture. Now consider this account that we find in Luke chapter 24, where we see a stranger that joins two travelers on the road. Scriptures opened, talked about, explained, and revealed. The stranger and the travelers then take part in a sacramental act, one being communion in Luke, and in this case being baptism. And then the story ends with the stranger disappearing from view and being taken somewhere else. Throughout the book of Acts, it's interesting to take note of the different events that reflect, that mirror the ministry and the work of Jesus. This reminds us that the work of the apostles and the church is in fact a continuation of the work of Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We can see the hand of God throughout this narrative. Philip was guided to the right place at the right time and met a man whose heart was being prepared by God for this encounter. Now, as we read the passage of, of Scripture that the eunuch was reading, 
we can notice again that this was not an accident. That at this precise moment, when Philip heard him, he was reading from a passage that was at a perfect place to begin sharing the good news of the gospel. I'm not sure there's better evidence than the divine, of the divine orchestration of this encounter than this messianic passage that was being read at this exact moment. Now, to use a, a baseball analogy, this is like a, an easy softball pitch right down the middle of the strike zone, just begging to be hit for a home run. And Philip was not asleep at home plate. He was ready to score. And so we see that Philip was ready to obey in the situation where the gospel was presented, the, the perfect opportunity to present the gospel was given to him. Now, the eunuch asks an interesting question. About whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? What seems to stand out for the eunuch in this passage is the suffering of the servant described in Isaiah 53. And I wonder if perhaps he had a sense of personal understanding of what it meant like to be rejected and to suffer. And given his ability, inability to enter into the Lord's assembly, perhaps he, he related well to this passage. And what do we see happen? Philip opens his mouth. Philip starts from this passage and declares the good news of Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we read about Stephen's sermon. And Stephen's, Stephen's sermon, as told to us in the book of Acts, is recounted in detail. We see how Stephen goes and talks about Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And we have great detail about the way Stephen presents this message. But in this case, in Philip's case, all we have is that he begins with his passage in Isaiah and goes on to explain the good news. We're left to assume the depth to which Isaiah, uh, or pardon, pardon me, Philip goes into explaining the passage of Isaiah and goes on to explain the character and the work of Jesus, his, his unjust suffering, his condemnation to death, and the good news of life to be had in Christ Jesus. As we go on, they come to some water and we have no reason to, to be given explicitly why Philip would be led to know for sure that the eunuch believed. You may notice actually in your Bibles that there's no verse 37. And I'll explain that. Um, many Bibles have removed this verse uh, from, uh, from the translation because it's, it's thought to have come from a, a scribe early on in the tra transcription of, of Scripture that saw this passage and felt the need to, to add to it, to give a little bit of clarity, and added this verse. And I'll read it to you. It says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So perhaps the scribe early on was, was attempting to, to, to give the reader the assurance that the eunuch truly did believe. But I think we can, we can safely say that when we look at the rest of the, the, the text that we get clear view that the eunuch really truly did believe and we don't need further um, explanation. Now remember last week in the first part of Philip's story, we saw how many Samaritans were baptized without necessarily having understood the gospel. They believed Philip 
and the signs and miracles he performed, but didn't necessarily show true faith. There's a contrast here between their baptism and the baptism of the eunuch. Now, in the case of the eunuch, he responded to Philip by asking for baptism. Now, as a, as a Jewish proselyte or a, a seeker of the Lord, he probably knew that water baptism was the expected sign or external symbol for a Gentile's repentance and conversion to the religion of Israel. And so, in all this story, it brings, up, brings us to this point. The culmination of this story is this baptism of the eunuch, his proclamation and declaration of faith in Jesus and his, in his act of obedience to declare it. The story began with the emphasis on the special intervention and the guidance of God. And we see how the Holy Spirit brings that to an end. He was there in the beginning and takes us through this encounter and takes away Philip at the end of this this encounter. And we see the fruit of the Spirit displayed in the eunuch. We want evidence that the eunuch believed. He goes on his way rejoicing. And we see Philip continue ministering as he goes on his way north. Now there's three ideas that I'd like to to emphasize a little bit more this morning in this divinely orchestrated encounter. The preeminence of the Holy Spirit, the importance of scriptural understanding, and the response of obedience. Now, starting with the preeminence of the Holy Spirit, this chapter in Acts is a lesson about how God's ways are not our own ways. From a human standpoint, this story doesn't make much sense. The eunuch's conversion is not the result of careful planning or conventional wisdom, but rather the direct result of divine leading. What we see is that the Holy Spirit is guiding us despite our lack of understanding or control. In our Western society today, we are used to having a tremendous amount of decision-making control over all decisions. The things we do, how we do them. We generally have input into things like what we study or where we work, where we live, who we will marry, who our leaders in in the government will be and what will be decided. In this story, though, we're reminded that no matter how much planning we might think we need, sometimes the Lord has his purposes that are outside our control and our own understanding. There's a great peace to be found in the sovereignty of God. And trusting in his ways is a tremendously comforting place to find ourselves in. Our plans may be lacking and perfect or poorly timed. When we yield to the Spirit's guidance, He works in us and through us for the accomplishment of his plans. Consider some of the overwhelmingly tragic events that have happened over the last 2,000 years. Cruel Cruel dictatorships, widespread famines, the plague, ethnic cleansings and genocides, wars on continental and even global scales. Throughout these incredibly bleak and terrible times, the Holy Spirit has allowed the church to survive and even thrive in the midst of these horrific times. No amount of careful planning can ever replace 
the preeminence and the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Now, another component of the preeminence of the Holy Spirit is that he prompts us to obey. Throughout this encounter, we see repeatedly how the Holy Spirit prompted Philip and orchestrated this whole conversion. When the Holy Spirit prompts us, it can often be uncomfortable. Notice what Philip is called to do. First thing, go to a desert place. This was not an all-expenses-paid tour of the Gaza Road in an air-conditioned RV with, all, uh, with, with food and with uh, a cook. Okay? This was a time-consuming, resource-consuming investment. Number two, go over and join the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot. I can imagine that accosting a foreign diplomat's chariot and going up to speak to him could definitely have, have, have had intimidating qualities to it. Now, the idea of being led or prompted by the Holy Spirit in personal and specific ways can generate some strong feelings amongst different Christians. At one end of the spectrum, some Christians will readily use the, the phrase, God spoke to me. And sometimes it's in order to justify all sorts of actions. The Holy Spirit can then become a means to an end in order to get what we want. To claim that the Spirit leads us in order to gain something for ourselves is to claim that God is someone he is not. There are many examples in the world today of so-called Christian leaders who intentionally use the term to abuse and manipulate people, often giving the promise of health or wealth or all sorts of happiness in returns for financial gifts. We need to be careful in how we apply the Spirit's individual and personal guidance. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you will find some Christians who very much dislike the idea that the Holy Spirit can or will prompt them. This position is sometimes a cautionary response to the more charismatic approach, but can very much underemphasize how the Holy Spirit can lead individuals to the point of even denying any personal guidance on specific matters. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is very much not a flaming charismatic, had this to say. If you read the history of the saints, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, you will find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. Men have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something, and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny such a possibility, we are again guilty of quenching the Spirit. We need to be careful not to, ne to neglect the Spirit's individual and personal guidance. So then how can we discern the guidance of the Holy Spirit? The guidance of the Holy Spirit is always aligned with the words of Scripture. Any guidance we perceive that is outside the Word of God and His truth is not guidance from the Holy Spirit, but is guidance from ourselves and our own desires. And so we need to be immersed in the Word of God to know and to recognize the Holy Spirit's guidance. Another facet of the preeminence of the Holy Spirit in this passage is, is opening our eyes to interpret Scripture. 
When we immerse ourselves in the word of God, he speaks to us and opens our eyes to the truth, which is from God. The eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Reading from Ephesians chapter 1, 16 to 18. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the glorious, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And another passage of scripture in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, 27 and tw- uh, 26 and 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To understand scripture, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to embrace God's grace and salvation. A good friend of mine, in his journey to becoming a follower of Jesus, has told me the story when he was in his 20s, not following the Lord at all. He was with a friend of his, and they were in western Canada hitchhiking. And he got picked up by a couple of guys, and they needed to do a, quite a stretch of road, a couple of hours of road together. And so they get picked up, and in the road, these two guys start talking to them about the gospel and about Jesus. And being polite and needing to be transported, they endured this preaching for, uh, for a couple of hours, and then they got dropped off. And when they did get dropped off, they both, they both laughed at how ridiculous this idea to follow Jesus was. How could anyone possibly choose to follow Jesus? And my friend now is a strong believer today. He said there was nothing wrong with the gospel presentation. But rather, it was a question of the eyes of his heart that were not yet opened by the, by the Spirit. And there's a question for you today. So are you saved? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? I invite you this morning to take that opportunity to take a step of faith like the eunuch did. The Lord has promised his spirit to those who believe in him. He's the one who opens the eyes of our hearts to the beauty of God's glorious riches and truth. The final component of the preeminence of, of the Holy Spirit in this passage that we see is that he fills us with fruit. The eunuch went rejoicing. Where there's heart transformation, there's evidence of the spirit working. Now, even contrast this, this fruit, the fruit of the spirit that we see in the eunuch, to the fruit of selfishness and greed that we see with Simon the magician in the first part of Philip's story. True heart transfer- transformation yields fruit. Another thing that's another theme that's important in this passage is the un- the importance of scriptural understanding. Why is it important? It shapes our hearts to become more like Christ and discern the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'll read to you a few, a few verses out of Psalm 119. Psalm 119.15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Verses 35 to 37, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless, worthless things 
and give me life in your ways. And we see also in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What better way to know God than to open his living word and discover him, to draw near to the Lord of Lords, Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Another component of the importance of understanding the scripture is that it makes us ready to understand the gospel and share the gospel. Now, something that I find interesting in this, in this passage is that if we remember that Philip's primary assigned role in the church was to hand out food. He was perhaps not the Philip that we would have expected to be Philip the Evangelist. Perhaps we would have expected Philip the Apostle to be Philip the Evangelist. But this did not prevent him from becoming a great evangelist. A couple of weeks ago, Dave Brereton shared a message co-written by Doug Virgent um, on Stephen's sermon. Not the Stephen who who preached last week, the Stephen from, from Scripture. One of the key points in his message was the importance of knowing and understanding Scripture. And we saw how Stephen was, in a matter of moments, ready to preach this incredible sermon before the council. He was ready because he knew Scripture and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think this is really important for us to understand that reading and understanding and meditating on Scripture is not just reserved for elders or pastors or doctors in theology. It's for all followers of Jesus. Ephesians 6, verse 15. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. We need to be ready to share the gospel. Opportunities of evangelization are often not planned like we might want them to be. They can come from conversations with work colleagues, interacting with someone sitting next to us on the bus, chatting with your neighbors over the fence, or exchanging with a cashier. I heard a story once about a Christian who received uh, their receipt um, and made a link between the amount and a Bible verse and used that as a, as a, as a way of starting to uh, talk to Jesus, to the waiter or the, the cashier. Um, as Nick mentioned this morning, I, I work for, for Youth for Christ, and this summer I'm directing a, a day camp. And one of the things we do at the beginning of the summer is we take our staff and we do some training with them and we do some outings to, to, to bond with them. What we did this summer is we went to Super Aqua Club. There's nothing like bonding with each other over uh, water slides and just the, the, the rush of adrenaline. Lots of fun. Um, but we got to one of the, the tops of these slides, and there's a lifeguard that was setting up our tube to, to go down. And uh, one of my young leaders, Tim, he, he turns to the lifeguard and says, uh, what's your name? You know that Jesus loves you? Jesus died for you? I, I want to pray for you. So he says, we're going to go down, and I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to be praying for you. 
So we go careening down the water slide. We come back up a minute and a half later. No lineup that day. It was fantastic. And so this lifeguard is just she's there. And Tim says, uh, you know, God, Jesus loves you. And I'm praying for you. And, uh, and we even saw him later as we were kind of getting ready to leave. Um, and just, just, just shouting, hey, child, we're praying for you. And it just it struck me with how, how much simplicity and spontaneity the key truths of the gospel message can be shared. I'm not sure what was going on in the heart of this young lifeguard. Perhaps he thought that Tim was a really strange guy. I kind of thought that it was a little strange, but, but, God, uses, but God uses those moments. Um, and perhaps a seed of gospel truth was sown in that young man's heart at the top of a water slide. And Tim was ready to share God's love at the, to this young man. We need to know the gospel to share it. We need to be ready in understanding what the gospel is and different ways of sharing it. There's never really a one-size-fits-all model to sharing the gospel, but rather we need to be aware of how the Spirit prompts us in our conversations. So we need to be ready and know how to share it. My final point, and I'll be relatively brief with this one, is the response of obedience that we see in this passage. Philip was ready to obey, and then he did obey. Being ready will only take us as far as the extent to which we choose to obey. So when the Lord calls us to obey, how do you respond? Philip obeyed both the command of Jesus, of the Great Commission, and the promptings of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. We don't need to wait for a special feeling of of certainty to be ready to share the gospel and to obey the Great Commission. We're called to do it. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Also consider the eunuch's response of obedience. His genuine, simple, and joyful response to the good news of Jesus bears witness to the heart transformation. Consider also his desire to follow Jesus. He's immediately willing to identify himself as a Christian through the waters of baptism. And he's ready to demonstrate that he belongs to the suffering servant, Jesus. If you're here today and have not answered the call to become the Lord's child, would you do it? But also, if you're here today and you've decided to follow Jesus, but you've yet to demonstrate that, that obedience through the waters of baptism, would you consider it? An obedient response to God's instructions is the hardest thing that we can possibly do. It means to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live according to the Spirit. It goes against our very sin nature to obey and to follow God, but it also is the most satisfying and life-giving thing that you could ever do. So here's some concluding thoughts and perhaps a few practical actions to consider. The Lord is good. He's faithful to complete the work that he's begun, begun in each of us. He's created us in Christ to follow him and obey him. The good news of Jesus is meant to be known by the world. How well do you know it? How do you share it? Let's marvel and give thanks to God 
for the wonderful news of the gospel that is meant for every nation and every tongue on earth. Let's be ready to share the gospel of Jesus at any time by being immersed in scriptures and meditating on them daily. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that the Spirit's sanctification transforms us to the likeness of Jesus. Let's be attentive to where God calls us to go and to follow him. Let's be ready to answer to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and not to quench him. And finally, let us be obedient to God no matter how strange or difficult his instructions may be. We will taste and see his goodness when we are obedient. All this for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of all. Be the Lord of our hearts. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we may see you, that we may understand your truth and apply it in our lives. Ready us for action, Lord, to spread the gospel, to apply it to our own lives, Father, and to, um, to go and to preach and to be ambassadors of your good news, the news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you for the beacon of light we are um, in the community of, of Montreal. I pray that you would bless this church, Lord, and everyone in it, that we would all radiate your glory for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.